You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 10th of September 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. It did not start with Donald Trump. He is a symptom, not the cause. The 44th president makes some observations about the 45th, but should he? My guests James Rogers and Oscar Guardiola Rivera will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including whether Sweden's election is a terrifying harbinger of the far right on the march or reassurance that the majority have retained command of their senses, Brazil's increasingly surreal election, and Russia gears up for the biggest military exercise in its history. But what are they practicing for? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Oscar Guardiola Rivera, reader-in-law at Birkbeck University of London, and James Rogers, head of international journalism studies at City University in London. Welcome both. And we will start in Sweden. With nearly all votes in yesterday's election counted, there is good news and bad news. The bad news, which is inevitably the news which is grabbing most headlines, is that 18% of Swedes cast their vote for the Sweden Democrats, a somewhat unsavoury gaggle of nativist cranks. The good news which has tended to be overlooked, as good news often is, is that 82% of Swedes didn't, instead splitting more or less evenly between the presently ruling centre-leftish coalition and their centre-rightish rivals. Um, James, first of all, there is, it strikes me anyway, a question here about uh, journalism, not just in Sweden, but around the world, uh, which is that it is, and I I guess assumes that its readers and listeners are as well, titillated by extremists, especially the far right. Um... Does it therefore overfocus on the far right to the extent which may actually help the far right at the polls? Well, it's it, quite possibly yes, but I mean, it's, it's always very, very difficult to sort of. Uh predict or, or to define the relationship between media coverage and success. But obviously they have had a lot of international coverage. This election, I think it's safe to say, has been covered in much more detail and a greater extent than most elections in Sweden normally would be well, because well, that, of what that, was at that, stake. Well, that's a low bar because, of course, normally from an international outlook, it's a Swedish election really with no disrespect to our Swedish listeners. Who cares? That's right. I mean, I think, you know, to defend some of the international reporting, I think today there has been a fairly sober note, Andrew. I have to say. I mean, there's a lot of reflection of the fact that the Sweden Democrats did not get the big figures which they were predicting for themselves. Um, There's a bit more sobriety. There's a lot of pointing out this is going to be a lengthy process to try to uh, form a coalition. And even, you know, some other outlets have been pointing to the facts, you know, seeing graphics comparing how well the Sweden Democrats have done with some of the other far-right stroke populist parties in Europe. And it's not, you know, the Sweden Democrats, and let's not forget that for this election they've rebranded themselves, they've taken away the rather more menacing logo for something which is a bit more cuddly, a flower to be precise. Um, and they've tried, you know, I think they've, they've tried to say this is not a party for racists although although one suspects it's one of those cases where you can say maybe uh, not everybody who votes for them is a racist but all racists probably do vote for them. I, I think it's one of those things as well where you, if you actually have to say we're not a party of racists, that's usually a, an indication that you kind of are. Um, 
Oscar, their vote isn't as big as they were claiming they were going to get, but it is bigger than they got last time. It is up from 12% to about 18% and change, which is a leap. Um, What does that tell us, if anything? You're absolutely right in pointing out that if you have to change your logo from a turch, a flaming turch, to a uh, blue uh, uh, (laughs) little flower and uh, tell everybody that you're not racist, it's precisely because that's what you are which makes it worrying that indeed, as you pointed out, a bigger percentage of the Swedish population decided to vote for their uh, anti-immigrant uh, uh, you know, heated rhetoric. Uh, that is uh, a point of concern. It is true that we must be uh, uh, more sober in our analysis of uh, the so-called far-right-wing wave in Europe. I don't think there is such a thing, but there is clearly something flaring very near the surface of uh, European politics, and we don't want it to flawed the state. But do you think that's a new thing? I mean, there has always been a far-right tendency in Europe, as there, I guess, always has been everywhere. Uh, I think in Europe, the benchmarks for measuring measuring it are they're obviously massively skewered by the, the, the events of the 1930s and 40s. But it's, it's never going to go away, is it? You're absolutely right, Andrew. What is new, what perhaps is, is new or what we are noticing uh, more is the fact that there are other circumstances around that there are, let's call them, uh, objective circumstances that might work in favour of a far right wing uh, populism, uh, particularly the political uh, fallout of the 2008 uh, economic crisis. Mm-hmm. And that's what uh, our focus should be on, because uh, if we look at uh, that, but also what is happening in the Americas, and we'll have uh, a chance to talk about that, then you begin to see uh, a story uh, there. And that story does uh, seem to point uh, towards uh, uh, right wing and far right wing reaction. Uh, I mean, James, the, 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 the thing thing that we're, we're seeing, or the whirlwind we're seeing being reaped here, is it's partly the 2008 mm. crisis. I'm sure that's true. But it, it is also the more recent influx of migrants and refugees to Europe, to which Sweden did respond with its, its customary generosity. In 2015 alone, it took in 163,000 asylum seekers. This is a country, population-wise, not that much bigger than London. Um, with the best will in the world, have is it possible that the Sweden's government overestimated uh, Uh, the enthusiasm of Swedish people for that generosity? Or does the fact that 82% of Swedes voted with essentially the status quo uh, actually confirm that, yeah, most Swedes actually are that generous? I mean, I think probably a bit of both. I mean, certainly hearing the Sweden Democrats spokespeople and their candidates talking in the aftermath of the election, that's exactly the kind of point they're making. They're saying, you know, we did have this big influx of people. We, they would argue, simply can't cope with it and people were not consulted about it. But on the other hand, um, you know, this is a challenge to which nobody has found a good solution, although it seems that far-right parties have been able to make some political capital out of it. I mean, I really think that if this was going to be the political earthquake that some people were predicting, Uh, then the Sweden Democrats would find themselves uh, in a stronger position. I mean, it doesn't look as if um, either of the the larger blocs, the the, the centre-left and the centre-right, are going to want to do any deals with them. Uh, But it may be that, as the populist far-right have done in other countries, that they will not particularly want to join the government but remain in sort of eternal opposition and having a big enough block in Parliament in order to cause trouble. I mean, that's the thing that strikes me about, um, Oscar, just as a final thought, 
thought on this about all these populist eruptions, whether you see them as part of a continuum, and I think you can if you talk about, you know, Trump, Brexit, uh, the AFD in Germany. It's as James said, these are not people who actually want to win uh, and be put in charge of things and take responsibility for things and implement policies. Um, they are kind of wreckers and hecklers, and, and it does strike me that in the, in the, on the occasions on which they have won, i.e. Trump and Brexit, uh, they've been both mortified and somewhat confused subsequently. Your point is very well made. In fact, we know that when they win and come to power, they wreck everything. What they, what they leave behind, what we are seeing in uh, both uh, the cases of Trump in America and uh, here with Brexit, is a trail of uh, disaster, catastrophe and more to come. That should tell us precisely what uh, uh, the uh, lack of substance and content of uh, the uh, rhetoric that changes uh, torches for blue uh, and white days is, uh, leaves us with a void. And that's what we want to avoid. Well, let's look now at Brazil, uh, which votes in general elections next month. The campaign for the presidency already featured the peculiarity of having one candidate, that was former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, in prison. It now has another candidate in hospital, Jair Bolsonaro, the right-winger currently leading polls, who was seriously injured on Thursday when stabbed at a campaign rally in Juiz de Fora. Bolsonaro missed Saturday evening's televised presidential debate and may not be well enough to campaign again uh, before for Brazil votes. Um, Oscar, regardless of what anybody thinks uh, of Bolsonaro, uh, I, you know, the, no need or wish at all to make light of his injuries. He was extremely seriously hurt, lost 40% of his blood, is actually quite lucky to be alive. Um, has the person who attempted to assassinate him pretty much guaranteed his victory? Let's hope that's not the case, because what uh, uh, this episode demonstrates is that the problem in the Americas uh, has not, is not the left, but rather right-wing and far-right-wing reaction. What we see in Brazil is not the suicide of a nation, but a crime. Those who were behind uh, the ongoing coup d'etat in Brazil, like Mr. Bolsonaro himself, had hoped that the violence uh, that they uh, themselves summoned uh, could be uh, uh, contained. They wanted to put a lead on it. But now that violence is beginning to flare up. And in fact, it preceded Mr. Bolsonaro. Let us remember that uh, the black uh, female lesbian counselor of Rio de Janeiro, so. uh, Maria Lafranco, was brutally assassinated. And after Bolsonaro's uh, brush with uh, the violence that he himself summoned, today we uh, uh, witness a policeman uh, shooting point blank a candidate of the uh, a black young candidate of the Workers Party right after Bolsonaro called for the assassination of Workers Party's militants in Brazil. Do you uh, that do you, is a problem. Do you think you can really frame the attack on Bolsonaro in those terms? Though I mean, it's very early in the investigation, but what we do know about the man who was apprehended, who was kind of muttering about being ordered by God, suggests that this may not have any particular political dimension. What I'm saying is that there is an environment of violence in Brazil now. There has been an environment of violence, and that environment is affecting uh, people in, on the ground. That one cannot uh, distinguish between the motivations, uh, crazies that might seem uh, you know, by uh, individuals, and the violent environment that uh, uh, somehow invites them and allows them to unleash uh, those inner calls. That's what we are seeing in Brazil. This is not just a coincidence. This is the result 
of the violent environment that those who have been behind the ongoing coup d'etat have uh, uh, summoned themselves. Um, James, we should look at at least some of of Mr. Bolsonaro's opposition. Lula da Silva, uh, his latest status is that he has been barred from Mm. running by an electoral court, but he does say he will appeal against that. Should he? I mean, regardless of the rights, whatever people may think of the rights and wrongs of his conviction, he is in prison. That that is the reality of it. Is, is, is it. Is it somewhat absurd to be proposing yourself as a president from a jail cell? Well, maybe not if you think you can win, I suppose. I mean, I think one of the interesting things, this really is turning out to be an astonishing contest given the the fates of various leading candidates. Um, But I think, you know, if Mr De Silva thinks he still has a strong constituency there and he thinks he can sort of, you know, portray himself as somebody who can successfully, you know, give the country what it needs, even if he is in jail, um, it's going to be very interesting. I mean, because as far as I understand, and while Mr. Bolsonaro has got every chance of a very strong showing in the first round, uh, the polls suggest it's highly unlikely he could triumph in any second round. So it really is a very, very open contest. And presumably, for that reason, uh, Mr. De Silva, albeit from prison, feels he should remind British polit- uh, Brazilian political life that he hasn't gone away. How, how open the contest is is also uh, questionable. Uh, very many polls. Actually, all polls do predict uh, uh, that Lula uh, would win if Mm. he's allowed to run. New polls are also suggesting that the vice uh, uh, presidential candidate on the ticket, Mr. Haddad, Mm. could also win if uh, Lula is not allowed to win. Let us also remember, and let me argue this uh, forcefully, that uh, you know, part of the violence that we have seen in Brazil is precisely the law of uh, persecution of uh, Mr. Lula. And now uh, Haddad might uh, uh, win uh, according to the polls. So the left does have uh, a chance, even without Lula. And it is precisely because of that that uh, the far right and the right wing and the Golpistas are unleashing uh, this kind of violence. Mm. I, mean, I think one interesting thing is going to be, you know, you mentioned whether this attack might somehow favour Mr. Bolsonaro in terms of garnering more support for him. Of course, with both these leading candidates in very, very difficult positions, which would seem to make their prospects of being elected all the more difficult. It is going to be interesting to see how that plays out in public opinion, if they are able to present that as somehow something of an advantage. Uh, Oscar, on the subject of vice presidential candidates, uh, given that it may take Mr. Bolsonaro a while to recover from his injuries. Uh, do we need to take a long, hard look at his running mate? This is former General Antonio mm. Moaro, who, who during Dilma Rousseff's presidency did seem to make some fairly, um, well, coup d'etat-ish remarks uh, about potential roles that the military could play. He has, of course, now retired, uh, but only recently. And this was not a long time ago he was talking like this. I'm, I'm very glad to hear, Andrew, that you're beginning to see my point here. Well, let's not, let's, let's not get crazy. <laughs> but uh, uh, but uh, yes, you're absolutely right. We need to take a, a you know, long, hard look at uh, the vice presidential candidate, also because he's there because he does represent uh, some of the predominant views among uh, a considerable sector of the Brazilian military. In fact, today we had uh, other uh, members, active members of the military, suggesting that uh, they might not agree with uh, uh, a uh, uh, Lula da Silva uh, presidency. And that's unprecedented in no country that should be uh, uh, or would be acceptable, and it shouldn't be acceptable in Brazil either.
James, just a final thought on this. We were talking at the top of the show about how the media reacts to Sweden's election. What's been your take on international coverage of Brazil's election? Because it it does strike me that in terms of non-Brazilian media, we're actually quite unusual in even having a conversation about it. And Brazil is not some, you know, irrelevant, out-of-the-way Ruritanian backwater. It is an extraordinarily, uh, you know, wealthy, powerful and important country, which is in a state of... uh, you know, advanced and bizarre political crisis, um, and it gets remarkably little coverage in the Northern Hemisphere. It does. I mean, I think this is this is a real blind spot for the British media, um, the the whole of, of of South and Central America, actually. And I've often wondered why. I mean, I think one of the reasons probably is because this country has got a lot of ties to the rest of the world, but most of them are for reasons of imperial history. And so, a lot of this, I think, in some ways, this is some, real something of a blind spot for um, for well, the because British most media. of the UK's imperial history is not in South America. Exactly, give or that's take right. That's one or right. Two so islands. it's not. That's right. So it's not. It's not necessarily a part of the world with, with, with which this country has a lot of historical ties, and so for that reason, I think it is one which has tended to be overlooked. And I think, you know, for this reason, because this, I mean, this is a fairly sensational election. I mean, let's not forget Brazil is, I think, the eighth largest economy in the world, a very important country, um, and so I think particularly because of these high-profile incidents, like the favoured candidate being in prison and another being attacked in this very dramatic and dangerous fashion is possibly one reason why it has garnered more interest than it normally would. But I think, yes, it is true to say it's normally a bit of a blind spot for the British media. Well, I think I'm right in saying there'll be more on this on this week's edition of The Foreign Desk, which goes live at midday on Saturday. For now, we will take a short break. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Oscar Guardiola Rivera and James Rogers. Coming up next, Russia on the march. The Monocle Summer Weekly is back. Throughout this month, Monocle's editors are producing a series of weekly newspapers, jam-packed with news, comment and analysis, plus a few sunny summer sojourns. These will accompany readers from the airport to the beach and beyond. The Monocle Summer Weekly newspaper is available at Better Newsstands and from the Monocle website, published every Thursday in August. Find out more and order your copy now at monocle.com. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You're back with Midori House, with me, Andrew Muller, still with me are Oscar Guardiola Rivera and James Rogers. Tomorrow is a big day, and doubtless an early start, for possibly 300,000 Russian soldiers as they embark on the largest military drills staged in the country's modern history. The Vostok, or East, exercise is staged every four years in the, as the name suggests, eastern reaches of the country, and has often been considered a warning and or demonstration to China. This year, however, China is taking part. 3,000 200 soldiers of the People's Liberation Army will participate in Vostok. Um, James, if if Russia is now not gearing up uh, to take a whack at China or protect itself from China taking a whack at it, what, what are they all doing out there? Uh, they're responding to the aggressive and unfriendly attitudes which Russia encounters in the world today, according to the Kremlin spokesman speaking recently when these exercises were first announced. Um, You'd just like to think that one day they're going to sit down and wonder if maybe the problem might be them. <laughs> I think what Russia is doing is trying to, to show that it has got a very large and, and very efficient military. I mean, if you look back... Uh, of Russia's military involvement over the last 10 years or so. Uh, the biggest probably military encounter it had in the post-Cold uh, War era at first was in 2008 when it went to war with Georgia. That was a small war which it was always going to win because it was much larger than its enemy. Um, but of course, that actually uh, produced um, 
or showed a number of failings in equipment and communications and so on, which Russia has spent an awful long time since putting right. Witness the uh, apparently efficiency of their annexation of Crimea, of their campaigns so far in Syria and so on. And Russia is, is wants to show that it has a large and very effective military. And, and obviously looking at the scale of this, we've got the Russian defence minister even comparing it um, to the size of exercises in the 1980s at the height of the Cold War in, in the Soviet period. And you can see that this is all about demonstrating to the world that Russia is very much back. Um, Oscar, there has been a recurring theme of this evening's programme of the, the, the Western media uh, constructing mountains from molehills. Um, has the reporting of this exercise, large though it is, been somewhat alarmist? I mean, having large-scale exercises is what one would assume the militaries of a large country are going to do from time to time. Absolutely the case, Andrew. You're right. I mean, I was uh, surprised at the coverage of uh, some of the media. My reaction was, well, what do you expect uh, the Russians to do at this uh, point I mean, exactly. If, if you were a Russian taxpayer, you'd be kind of miffed if they weren't. Exactly. And, and also, uh, the other two points that most coverage have uh, missed have to do with the fact that uh, the war in Syria is pretty much done. And uh, Assad has won. I've heard UN officials already saying this. And, They've been uh, saying this for a while. Well, no, but this time they're... I mean, they'll be right eventually, this, but this they time have been this saying time this for a while. They, they, have, they have enough uh, uh, evidence to back up their claims. And uh, if so, then the fact that uh, we are going to see in this uh, March, uh, uh, you know, several uh, frigates equipped with caliber missiles uh, that have been used in Syria does send that kind of message. Ooh, this time... Uh, we did it. So uh, that's, that kind of message is also there. If you put that together with the fact that uh, 3,000 uh, Chinese soldiers are going to accompany these exercises, then uh, the message is uh, somewhat different. Uh, of course, there is uh, uh, paranoia and hyperbole on both sides, uh, but uh, our coverage should pay attention to the fact that uh, this message is also for the sort of uh, national gallery, for uh, Putin's uh, voters, for the taxpayers, and they would like to see those caliber uh, missiles, uh, uh, you know, uh, on the ground after uh, serious uh, achievements. Uh, James, is there an element of, of, especially in terms of the the Russia-Chinese uh, cooperation here, an, an element of are you watching Donald Trump about this? I think possibly. I mean, Russia's had a very sort of difficult relationship with China in some ways in the in the post-Soviet period and indeed in the Soviet period. I mean, there's there's big scope there for a sort of energy cooperation when we've seen these rows, as it were, through gas transit through Ukraine um, in the last decade and earlier in this one, people were saying, you know, Russia's saying, look, we don't need you, you need us more than we do, we can always go to China. But those, that sort of cooperation has never quite worked out. And in, within Russia, there's also concern about um, China's ambition in the Far East because China, uh, Russia has got vast tracts of agricultural land which are lying you know, unused there in the Far East and there are concerns there about the number of Chinese businesses which are growing up there because obviously the Far East of Russia is a very, very long way from Moscow and the heart of the Russian economy. So I think it's, it's, it's a very sort of difficult relationship. There may be an element here where they're saying, look, we're working with the Chinese in an international military forum. Politically and economically, the relationship is much more complicated than that and Russia's not always satisfied. I don't think that it gets treated as seriously as it would like by China. OK, well, finally tonight uh, to the United States, and though it often feels like Donald Trump has been president for several centuries, it is less than two years since America and therefore the free world had a leader who spoke in sentences. Barack Obama reminded of this with a speech at the University of Illinois on Friday, which contained some historically unusual swipes.
hopes at his successor. The general convention has been that after Marine One lifts the outgoing president off the White House lawn, they keep decorously quiet thereafter. Um, Oscar, in general, I think that's a good convention and a good tradition that you've had your time. It's up. Get off. Shut up. We don't need to hear from you any further. Um have normal conventions, however, been suspended? These are not conventional times in the United States. Uh, my favorite phrase uh, on uh, this story was pronounced by Jen, Jen uh, Saki, the uh, former Obama White House communications director, who said a buffoon could have kept uh, the economic recovery going. And in fact, one has so far. <laughs> uh, well, th- this is uh, one of the portions of Obama's speech, uh, James, that did attract a bit of criticism. President Trump is, of course, uh, claiming credit for America's economy because he claims Trump for he tra- claims Trump claims credit. Trump claims credit for literally everything good, whether it had anything to do with him uh, or not. Um, is Obama, by attempting to bite back at that, at least kind of sinking to Trump's level? Shouldn't he just be happy to let the historical record speak for itself? Possibly, but I'm not sure the historical record really is being allowed to speak so much. I mean, Mr. Trump does sort of try to blot out most things that don't agree with him. So I suspect that Mr. Obama probably feels that, you know, in the measured way that he did it, you know, we saw excerpts of that speech last week, that he, he was about just to remind people, you know, that uh, that it may not be right for Mr. Trump to take credit for absolutely everything that is going right with the US economy. I mean, this, after all, is a game which all governments play. I mean, if we look at the sort Absolutely. of knockabout game that we have weekly here in uh, in the British Parliament, where the two main parties famously face each other and, and exchange insults as far as they can under the auspices of the Speaker. And, but there's a lot of, you know, the criticism of policy, and they will say, you know, the economy is not doing, uh, is doing much better, and yes, and they'll say, yes, that's because of the policy which we had when last week we were in office, so I think this is fairly standard. But it, it is, um, I mean, it, it is it is a, a convention in the, in the US to do this. But as uh, as Oscar says, you know, we don't live in conventional times. I mean, it, it struck me as kind of a continuation of what we saw at Senator John McCain's funeral. There is a, a degree of outspokenness uh, from previous presidents, uh, which is, uh, I, I mean, I, obviously there's been absolutely nothing like it. But but at that funeral, there was not just Obama. But George W. Bush speaking as well, and while neither of them mentioned Trump by name, um, the 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 both speeches were essentially long subtweets uh, aimed at Trump, weren't they? Absolutely, many senior figures in the American political landscape are uh, finally uh, recognizing that uh, you cannot just allow uh, Trump to uh, get on. Uh, uh, with what he's doing, uh, because in fact uh, he is changing the rules. Uh, not he's not operating, uh, uh, you know, following the rules, uh, and he does so when he makes uh, claims in relation to uh, the American economy. Let us not forget also that the midterm el- elections are coming. So uh, Obama's uh, clarification is very important here. But when Mr. Trump overstates the facts uh, and claims that the, the, a good economy is better than it has ever been in America. American history, he is uh, uh, just uh, lying. The economy did better under Ulysses S. Grant, uh, Dwight <laughs> David Eisenhower, Lyndon B. Johnson, and yes, Mr. Bill Clinton. Uh, so uh, uh, the fact that the economic recovery did begin uh, with Obama is important both for electoral uh, reasons, 
and uh, for historical political reasons. Given the current climate is a very important clarification and I'm glad that Obama is beginning to speak up finally. I mean, James, the, the, the appearance of Obama on a public stage again, and that has been twice in a week, do, mm. does raise also the interesting question, not just in terms of ex-presidents, but in him in particular. What can or should he do next? He is far from an old man. He's only 57. Yeah. Um, you, one presumes he is already at work on the memoir, which I think will be an unusually readable one. But mm. if, if you are him, and you are constrained, I think, by a certain uh, notions which I think are mostly, as I was saying, correct ones of post-presidential behaviour, what should he actually do? Well, I think it's very difficult, isn't it? Because for, if you think about it, in the last 20 years, particularly in a lot of the Western democracies, we've had a lot of younger leaders than normally mm. we've had. You know, we had Mr Obama becoming president in his 40s, Tony Blair, the British Prime Minister, also becoming Prime Minister in his 40s. It does leave an awful lot of working life left afterwards for, for people who've achieved probably the height of theirs and, and many other people's ambitions. So it's, it's quite difficult to find a role, I think. Uh, and particularly, I imagine, uh, Mr. Obama, it doesn't take a genius to work out, looks on with a degree of dismay at what has followed. I, I mean, my, my own idea, Oscar, and I may not have thought through the details, but I, I can see a role for him. If, I, if I've done the maths right, at the risk of invoking uh, a, a controversy, he's technically entitled to a Kenyan passport. That would make him a Commonwealth citizen and therefore, I think, entitled to run for office in this country, um, which, which could, I think could do with, with a dose of his leadership. I think it's doable. Count me in in that electoral team. <laughs> James, we, 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 well, we would have, you vote for that? Well, possibly. I mean, we've had, you know, we've had Tony Blair, we were just mentioning, observing that, you know, if the way that things might look at the next general election in this country, that... Uh, uh, a large number, if not majority, of voters would find uh, both main parties rather unappealing. Maybe there is uh, a gap for Mr Obama to, to try to relaunch his political career. Who knows? Well, There's it's a few steps, though, probably to go before we find him much, leading the third Much party. better than Blair, that's in, for sure. In, in, well, in recent years, funnier things have literally happened, if we're talking funny peculiar rather than funny ha-ha. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Oscar Juadiola Rivera and James Rogers, thanks for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco Research by Martha Libri. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. More music next at 1900. It's the Monocle Culture Show with Rob Bound. More on the day's main stories on the Daily at 2200. I'm back with Midori House at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening.